We're not really sure exactly when it was written, but we think it was probably done sometime in the late first century. So it is a book that may have been written around the time that some of the other books in the New Testament were written. But we do not include the Didache in our New Testament. If you look in your New Testament, you won't find the book there. But the book is important for historians because it tells us a lot about the history of the early church, what the Christians believed, how they practiced. For example, we talked a little bit about baptism and how the Didache teaches on baptism or the Lord's Supper or prayer. We spent some time talking about that, but we also spent some time looking at the early structure of the local congregation. In particular, we looked at the role of the early presbyters or elders, many of whom became pastors. And then we began to look at the early bishops or overseers, administrators of the church. And we observed how that early Christian organization in the church is actually something that was reflected in the New Testament in the works of the Apostle Paul. In particular, when he was writing to Timothy and Titus, who were early pastors, Paul gives them instructions on the organization of the local congregation. So we talked about all of that last time. Today, we are going to be talking about some of the early church pastors and theologians and the challenges that they face when they try to defend the Christian teaching over against other world religions, other philosophies that were going on in the ancient world. So we're going to be looking at the early church and the problem of defending the true Christian faith against opponents. Well, I want to talk first about some of these early church fathers, we call them. It's during the early history of the church that the title pater, P-A-T-E-R, pater, it's a Greek word, it's also a Latin word, and it means father. In the early church, that term pater was first applied to the bishops, the overseers of the congregations, kind of like the senior pastors. These men were called pater or fathers because they had been witnesses of the earliest days of the church's history. And in some cases, these men had actually known the apostles. So, for example, some of the men knew the apostle Paul or they knew the apostle John and maybe had worked with John or sat at the feet of John and heard the message of Jesus from John. So those early pastors were often called fathers. Now, over time, that term father or father of the church is going to be applied to a, a more or less defined group of authorities or authors in the church whose opinions or whose teaching, I should say, whose teaching on doctrinal matters was considered especially weighty. So the fathers of the church became the authorities, the theologians, if you will, on what the scriptures taught. Later, that term father will become, will be applied to pastors, bishops, teachers, and theologians who were considered orthodox in their teaching. So we talk about the church fathers in the second, third, fourth century. Those church fathers were, were really theologians who wrote theological works. And of course, as you probably know, to this day, in some of the churches, especially the, uh, the Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the pastors are called father, or people address their, their pastors or the priests as father. Even in Italian, the word for father is papa, papa, and that's what they call the pope in Rome, il papa. That's his name. It's father. Well, we haven't carried on that tradition really in the Lutheran Church, but it stems back from this 
from this early time. So there is a whole field of study of the writings of the church fathers in this early period. We call it the field of patristics. And at Concordia Seminary, we have several professors who are experts in the area of patristics. They study the lives and the works and the writings, the theology of these early church fathers, really from the end of the first century all the way through the end of the eighth century. These early church fathers wrote in Greek if they were working in the eastern Mediterranean world, in North Africa, uh, in Egypt, for example, or Asia Minor or Syria. They tended to write in Greek. If they were working in the west, in Italy, or in what is today France, they would have written in Latin, and their works are preserved in those languages. You probably recognize some of the names of these early church fathers. Some of the Greek fathers were people like Irenaeus, we'll hear more about him today, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Athanasius, there's probably a name that you recognize, Athanasius, we know him from the Athanasian Creed, he didn't write the Athanasian Creed, but his teaching is reflected in the Athanasian Creed, John Chrysostom, John of Damascus, our, our other Greek fathers, John of Damascus is interesting because he tells us about Mohammed, early on. He's writing in the 6th century, 7th century. He tells us about the rise of Islam in the Eastern world. Some of the important Latin church fathers from the West include people like Cyprian, Ambrose, Jerome, and Augustine. These were men that were working in Italy or in North Africa. So these early church fathers, as we call them, were pastors and teachers. They preached and taught the Christian faith. And they especially dealt with problems, problems within the church, especially those problems having to do with the church's teaching and the practice of the faith. As you might imagine, there were conflicts within the Christian church, conflicts among Christians about what the church taught and how it should practice. There were issues that they had to deal with. And so these men wrote books and treatises that explained the true teaching of the church, but they also defended the Christian teaching against outside opponents, non-Christians, who wanted to uh, interfere with the Christian church or challenge its teachings. So why was this necessary for these theologians to do this? What were the reasons for the conflicts, not only within the churches, but conflicts between the church and the world around it? In other words, why, why the trouble? Why the problems? Well, in the earliest days of the church, while well, the church was still in, in Israel, in Palestine, in Judea, in, in Jerusalem, for example, when the church was, was operating in that context, Christians could assume a common starting point for the faith. Everybody knew the background of Christianity. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the stories, the narratives of the life of Christ from the Gospels, those uh, Gospels, of course, would become the basis of the New Testament scriptures. So the people in, 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 in the world of, of Judea and Jerusalem and Palestine knew the biblical story, Old Testament and New Testament. And the worldview, the way that they viewed their life in the world with God, that worldview was shaped by the biblical story. It was shaped by, for example, the story of creation in the book of Genesis. Their understanding of life with God was informed by the story of God dealing with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
the story of the exodus from Egypt, the promised land, the judges, the kings, the prophets, the exile to Babylon, and the return back to the land of Israel. The people proclaimed the story of the works and promises of Yahweh. They knew about the promised Messiah, the Christ. So while the Christian church was operating in, in Israel, they kind of had that common worldview and people understood, basically. But when the Christians went out from Judea, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, about the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, there was the Jewish revolt, the Romans came in and, and repressed the revolt, and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and really took complete control over the land of Palestine. Many Jews left, and many Christians left, too. There was a scattering of Christians out into mostly the Mediterranean world. They went to North Africa. They went to Syria. They went to Asia Minor. Some of them went to Greece. Some of them went to Italy. When Christians left that old context in which they had been raised and went out into this new world, into a Greco-Roman world with a Hellenistic context, there they met challenges right away. There the world, the Greco-Roman world, saw things its own way. It didn't know anything about the God of the Old Testament or how he dealt with his people. The Romans didn't know anything about the promises of the Messiah, and they didn't have any use for Jesus. The Romans were the ones that, that you know, Pilate crucified Jesus. The Romans don't have any use for this old Judeo-Christian worldview or its teachings or anything like that. The Greeks and the Romans, they have their own religious ideas. They have their own philosophies, which are very different than Christianity. I mean, really different from Christianity. The virtues of the Romans are not the virtues of the Christians. I think you know that. So these are the kinds of challenges that the Christians face when they go out. Now, I want to give you just a couple of examples of, of the worldview of the Greco-Roman people, especially the, the Greeks. This is a Hellenistic worldview that is, in many cases, informed by philosophy. For example, the philosophy of Plato. Now, before our eyes all glaze over with the, I don't want to give you a philosophical lecture about Plato. I'm not really able to do that. But that kind of uh, worldview that the Greeks had was one that was informed by philosophy, for example. Uh, and so what you have with, with Greek philosophy at this time is the basic idea that there are material things, physical things in the world, and there are spiritual things in the world. And that some kind of demiurge, kind of a, a heavenly being of some kind or another, created the world out of chaos and created material things and then spiritual things but the material things in the world are flawed. They're corrupted. Human beings, for example, are flawed and corrupted. And the material things of the world, of the world of matter, is corrupted. It's separated from the spiritual higher world, the realm above. So the material things in the Greek philosophical system, the Greek saw that the material things were, were bad. There's something that needed to be overcome or at least ignored and pushed out of the way. And human beings needed to aspire to the higher things. So those kinds of ideas where, where material things are, are negative or bad and spiritual things are higher and good, 
that really kind of shaped the Greek mindset. So you can imagine, for example, when Christians went out into that world and said that, uh, that their Savior, Jesus, who was a man, who was flesh and blood, was also God. Right there, you have a problem if you're a Greek, because there's no self-respecting God that would ever become flesh material. That's ridiculous. Gods are higher spiritual beings. They don't have anything to do with human beings. They certainly don't become flesh and blood. So right away, the very central teaching of Christianity, of Christ, and Christ's incarnation, literally made in the flesh, that's a problem for a lot of Greeks. They don't like that. He'd be a much better Jesus if he were just spiritual. Or if he got over the whole human thing, the whole material side, the fleshly, got over that and just became a spirit, that they maybe could relate to a little bit more. So you can kind of see how the Christians are going to have a little bit of trouble as they take their message of Jesus out into the world. The Christian message is really foreign to the world into which it's going. Now, one thing I want to point out with regard to the challenges that the Christians are facing at this time, they go out and they talk to one another. They talk to other people, Greeks, Romans, and so forth. And as they begin to go, they find that there are some things that the Greeks and Romans resonate with, with this teaching about God. We talked about that a few weeks ago. There are some things that Greeks and Romans find attractive about Christianity. For example, the idea that Christians work with texts. They have books that they read and they talk about them. They argue and discuss. Greeks like that. Greeks like the idea of one God. They're very intrigued with that. But what kind of God is that? Uh, they're intrigued with the idea of no sacrifices in Christianity. Uh, that's a unique thing for them. There's all kinds of things that, that Greeks find kind of intriguing about Christianity. But there is one temptation that Greeks have very quickly with regard to Christianity. And that is a word that we call syncretism. Now, this is kind of a, a big word. Well, it sounds strange. But what syncretism is, simply is the blending together of religious beliefs. The blending together of religious beliefs. So, for example, syncretism would be if you take some Christian ideas and you blend them together with some gr Greek pagan religious ideas and you come up with a new belief system. Or syncretism would be some things from Christianity and some things from Greek philosophy, and you blend them together to come up with a new religion. Okay. So there are some things that the Greeks and Romans like, and they decide to take some things from Christianity and blend it with philosophy or with some kind of other uh, belief system that they've got. Now, by the way, and there would be no apparent conflict with this. We should point out here that the... Um, the Greeks and, Greek and Roman religions were very syncretistic. The Greeks and Romans did this all the time. Remember, they have all these different gods. Remember Paul in Athens preaching there in Athens to the people, and he sees all the temples and all the, the statues and all the altars to all these gods, and he sees one that they've got one to the unknown god, 
the, the Greeks are keeping their options open. Just in case they missed one of the gods somewhere, they've got an altar for that one. They don't know what to call him yet because they haven't, they haven't figured him out yet or, or discovered him, but they're keeping that one uh, space free for the other god that might come in. The Greeks and Romans like syncretism. They like blending stuff together. Uh, another example of this would be that the, uh, the Romans in particular, the, remember the Romans go down to Egypt. They conquer Egypt. And while they're down there, the Romans find uh, the god Osiris. Osiris is the Egyptian god of the afterlife. And the, Greek, the Romans think to themselves, you know, we've got one of those. We have a god of the afterlife. But it might be a good idea to make Osiris happy. If, if he really exists, we better uh, be nice to Osiris just to keep our options open. So there's a whole cult of Osiris that develops in Rome. And there are temples to Osiris and altars and a whole group of Romans that worship Osiris just to make sure that uh, things are going to be okay. This is what we mean by syncretism. They just kind of bring in a whole other god and a whole other belief system into their religion. And there's not a problem with that. If you're Greek, if you're Roman, uh, that's what they, what they do. Uh, but if you do this with Christianity, it immediately becomes a problem. Because Christianity can't tolerate that. We heard about this in our sermon this morning. Pastor Thomas at the first service talked about this from John chapter 6. Jesus is the only way to salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except by the Father, Jesus says. Well, you can't believe that. You can't be a follower of Jesus who says, I am the way, only me. You can't worship and follow him and then have a few other gods on the side that you, you, know, you take care of as well. It, that doesn't work. Christianity is exclusive. And uh, you can see the problem that's coming. If somebody tries to introduce pagan or philosophical ideas into Christianity, they very quickly become heretical. Uh, they're outside the, the teaching of the Christian church. But this kind of thing is not uncommon in the ancient world. Uh, and we find that the Christians are going to have to deal with this problem. There's lots of belief systems that are, are people are going to try to introduce into the Christian church. Many of the times it wasn't actually Christians that were doing it, but people who decided that they wanted to be Christians and bring in a whole suitcase full of other beliefs into the Christian religion. But it is really inevitable that Christians would face opposition to their teaching. And it is inevitable that they should seek to oppose the other religious reviews, reviews or at least resist them. And it was inevitable that there would be some people who would try to accommodate the Christian faith by bringing other religious ideas into it and thus making Christianity syncretistic as well. And we're going to talk about this next week. We're not going to get to it today. But one example that I want to give you with, with a problem here is uh, with regard to the, the Roman emperors. The Roman Empire was generally tolerant of Christianity in the first couple of centuries. They're not really sure what the Christians are all about, but they don't seem to be causing a lot of trouble so we'll, we won't bother them. That was the general attitude early on. But remember that the, the Roman religion and the Roman Empire really required its people to worship the emperors 
as gods. They were living gods. This starts with Caesar Augustus all the way back before the birth of Christ. The Roman emperors were considered to be divine beings who were to be honored and worshipped. And every self-respecting Roman would offer sacrifices to the emperor and worship in the imperial cult. So if, you know, you're only going to have, Christians are only going to have a problem if they run into an emperor or they run into some kind of government official that says, let's see you uh, worship the emperor because you're supposed to do that, you know. Well, guess who the first martyrs were in the Christian church? And we're going to hear about this next time. Just about, well, I shouldn't say everyone, but most of the, the martyrs in the early church were people who refused to offer sacrifices to the emperor. And they were punished for that and put to death for that. So you, in a sense, the, the temptation or the request of Rome was to be syncretistic. Yeah, you can have your Jesus, that's fine, but, but bring the emperor in too. You've got to worship him as well. And many of the early Christians said, well, well we can't do that. We won't do that. That was their witness. They, they, they worshiped Christ. Their faith was in Christ and not in the emperor. And they rejected that whole system and they paid for it with their lives. So that's one example of, of the effort to, to kind of bring something else into Christianity. I want to talk a little bit now about another major effort to try to change the Christian belief system, and that is Gnosticism. This is another big word that uh, I'll try to explain. Gnosticism is a form of religious syncretism. It's a form of this blending together of religious beliefs. And Gnosticism basically was the idea that there was a secret knowledge. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. The basic presupposition of the Gnostics, the followers of this system, basic, their basic assumption was that there was a secret teaching of Jesus that somehow or another did not get recorded in the New Testament books. Uh, John missed it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, didn't, were, they weren't there that day when Jesus talked about the secret knowledge that he had. Okay. The Apostle Paul never got it, but the Gnostics had it. They had a secret knowledge from Jesus, and they claimed that it was Jesus' own teaching, and they claimed that it was true. Okay. Or they claimed that it was from God, and they had the true teaching, and that the Christian teaching was inadequate. It was insufficient. It was unfinished. It wasn't the whole story. So the Gnostic argument to people would be, come, follow us, and we'll give you the real story. We'll tell you the truth about Jesus. We'll tell you what really happened with his crucifixion and his, his crucifixion and his resurrection. We'll tell you what that was really about. And so some people go and listen. Well, what is it? Can you imagine the basic attractiveness of a claim like that? I got something secret for you. Come here, come here, I'll tell you. Well, people go. What, what do you mean a secret? Did we miss something somewhere along the line? Could that be? Maybe we don't know everything that they're supposed to, we're supposed to know as Christians. Well, you can imagine, this causes all kinds of conflict in the church. And very quickly, Christians begin to ask the question, well, what, what is it that we believe? What is the true Christian teaching? 
What is it that Christians believe and teach and confess? And then how do we know that we have the right teaching? What is the authority of our teaching? Where does this, where does this all come from? This is a major turning point in the history of the early church when these kinds of questions have to be asked. I suppose it's inevitable that it would happen. Somebody begins to question the Christians. Well, how do you know that? How do you know what you believe is true? Gnosticism is really a threat to that. Now, I'm going to give you an example of, of, uh, of a particular kind of Gnostic belief. There's lots of different kinds of Gnosticism and lots of different beliefs that, that were a threat to Christianity. I'll give you one example of this, but I, I want to go first and tell you about a, a man who defended the church's teaching over against Gnosticism. This man is named Irenaeus, and he lived from around the year 130 to around the year 200 AD. So he's a second, second century theologian and pastor. He was a, a Christian pastor and bishop in the city of Lyon in what is today southern France. It was in those days the Roman province of Gaul. Now, he was originally from Asia Minor, from Smyrna. So he was from the Greek side of things. And Irenaeus was an apostle of a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was the second century bishop of the city of Smyrna. And Polycarp himself had been a disciple of the apostle John. So you can see the transmission here. You've got Jesus teaching John, John who lives for a long time and writes books in the gospel. Uh, John teaches Polycarp the truth of the Christian message. And then Polycarp teaches it to Irenaeus. That's that line of, tra of tradition, if you will, or transmission is important. Now back to Irenaeus. He studied under Polycarp. He studied at Rome. Early on, he was a missionary to the Gauls in southern France. And later on, he became a pastor there. Uh, and he, so he had connections with both the Eastern and the Western church. Irenaeus lived at a time when Gnostic ideas were a significant threat to the church and its teaching. This guy had to go do battle against Gnostic teachings just about every day. He was inundated with this kind of stuff. And most of his work as a theologian uh, were, were attempts to refute the teachings of the Gnostics and to defend the teachings of Christianity. And we might even call Irenaeus an apologist for the Christian faith. What we mean by apologist, it doesn't mean that he went around apologizing all the time. I'm really sorry about that. You know, we, we're working on this. We'll get this fixed. It wasn't that. It is, apologist, is, he's an, a defender an apology is a defense of the Christian teaching. And, and Irenaeus was one of the very best at this in the, in the early church. He wrote a book called Against Heresies. Against Heresies was the name of this book. This is a very important book. He wrote it against the Gnostics. They were the heretics. And the, the, the work Against Heresies is one of the best sources that we have with regard to not only what the Gnostics taught at the time in the second century, but it also gives us a very good idea of the Christian teaching at the time. Because what Irenaeus does is he lays out the Gnostic teaching. He says, all right, this is what they're saying. This is the belief system or the religion of the Gnostics. 
And then this is what a Christian teaching is. And this is why Gnosticism is wrong. And this is why Christianity is right. Let's get this straight. So that, this work details all of, all of these kinds of, of arguments. It's a, a very, really very detailed attack on Gnosticism, especially the teachings of a very influential Gnostic teacher by the name of Valentinus. I want to tell you just a little bit about Valentinus. Valentinus lived from around the year 100 to around the year 160. He was a Gnostic thinker, and uh, he was from Egypt. Now, Valentinus claimed to have been a disciple of the Apostle Paul. I'm getting all this from Paul. Everybody respects Paul. Of course, we, the historians have done the math, and they figured out this is likely in, impossible to be true. Uh, because of the dates and, and everything. It just doesn't work out. Uh, but we do know that Valentinus studied in Rome for a while. He founded a school there, and then he went back to Egypt. And he developed a, a very popular form of Gnosticism and was probably the most influential of the Gnostic teachers. Now, let me just explain his ideas briefly here. Valentinus and the Gnostics had a problem with Orthodox Christianity. Valentinus thought that Christianity was too simple. It was uh, th this basic confession of faith, these basic, cr basic creed of the Christian faith. Valentinus said that is intellectually deficient. It's kind of simple and a little bit silly. Uh, the presupposition is you really can't expect people, intelligent people, to believe that stuff. That's the basic presupposition of, of uh, Valentinus and Gnosticism. It's just simply not enough. It's too simple. So what Valentinus wanted to do was to, to present a teaching that was more sophisticated, more intellectual, more complex. Let's be serious and get a, a belief system that real people, real intelligent people can, uh, can follow and believe. Uh, now, by the way, that, you, that idea, we hear this today uh, as well, that Christians are always kind of simplistic because of what we believe. There's always something better. You know, Christianity would be fine if it actually dealt with the real issues uh, in the world or issues of, of uh, meaning of life and existence and things like that. The Gnostics were convinced that if people had this, this higher knowledge, this higher wisdom, that, that leading, which would lead to an enlightenment of sorts, and then they would have wisdom in its fullness, then they would be able to overcome the troubles and the pains of this earthly life. Then you'd have a religion that would really do something. Right? Basically, what you have here is what Martin Luther would call a theology of glory, which is taking the Christian message and saying, oh, you know, He'd be a better God if he were like this. Or Christianity would be a better religion if it were like this. And we'll present that religion to you, and then, then you really got something. Okay. Well, this is what Gnosticism does. The Gnostics taught that the only way to true salvation was possible through acquiring this secret knowledge, this gnosis that they had, the secret teaching which they claimed they got from Jesus it's knowledge that's not revealed in the scriptures. You've got to get it from us. We'll tell it to you. Uh, but it's a, it's a secret thing. 
Now, I'm going to give you just a, a brief rundown on this. This is uh, really, really weird stuff, Gnostic teaching. Um, Valentinus, for example, taught that there existed in the world a vague uh, collection of divine beings, or the fullness of the deity, he called it, the pleroma. And the weakest and the smallest of these divine beings had fallen into error. They had left the fullness of the deity, uh, and they left this bright, beautiful world above the higher spiritual realm, and they came down into the material realm uh, of the physical universe, and they corrupted it. And the goal of the Gnostic religion, the Gnostic system, was to introduce true wisdom that would overcome the corruption of the material world. You could escape all the troubles and pains of life if you had the right gnosis, the right knowledge. So, the, again, the Gnostics were concerned about this separation of the material and the spiritual realm, the distinction between this lower physical world, which is all evil and corrupt, and the higher realm, which is good uh, and, and really holy, perfect anyway. It's, it reflects Greek philosophical idea. It comes with those presuppositions. So only the higher world matters. That's, only the really, that's the only really important one. So they might mistreat the material world. They might abuse the flesh. They might be very ascetic uh, and live very disciplined lives. Or they might indulge the flesh, depending on their belief system. In any case, the uh, human body, human beings are not to be redeemed. There's nothing redeemable about something that's material. Okay. So again, the Gnostics thought that they had this private secret teaching from Christ. The apostles knew it, but they just didn't write it down. And it was a, a wisdom among the perfect, they called it. Gnosticism was the heir. They had the truth. And so if you want the truth, they would say, you've got to come to us and we'll teach you. So they're trying to lure Christians away. Jesus talked about this in the Gospels. Jesus said that there would be false teachers who would come and try to take people away from him. And that's, that was a prophecy that came true. I want to give you one more very brief example of what I believe is, a, is really an extreme form of Gnostic belief that's not at all Christian, uh, but is, is kind of a later uh, adaptation of Gnostic belief, which has become uh, a, a, a major world religion, and that is Islam. Islam is really uh, a radical form of Gnosticism. Uh, Muhammad, they believe he was the prophet in the 6th and 7th centuries. He pulled some of these beliefs, some of these heresies, from the Gnostic teachers, and he added his own ideas, his own teachings, what he called prophecies, to create a new religion, Islam. So the Muslims regarded Muhammad as a prophet with a fuller revelation than Jesus had. Muhammad was the final prophet, or at least the, the last one. Jesus was just a guy along the way who didn't really die and didn't really rise from the dead. He was just a prophet. But Muhammad, let's see, he got the secret knowledge about God, and he pulled it forward. So you see how that goes. This is kind of, I think, one example of a later Gnostic adaptation. So the Gnostics are all about people getting the right information. 
And again, the presupposition, if, not, if you get the right information, you'll do the right thing, you'll be happy, you'll overcome the world and all its problems. This is, this is a very common idea today. This is alive and well. Gnosticism is, is, is you know, it's widespread today. Or at least they maybe don't call it Gnosticism, but the basic idea there. Uh, some kind of enlightenment will, will cure all the, the evils and ills of this world. Uh, I could go on and on about, about all about all that. But you find, I think, for example, uh, systems today in our world that are really Gnostic in many ways. I think, for example, uh, there are a whole bunch of false religions and cults that are Gnostic. Uh, I think a prime example of that is, is Scientology. The writings of all around Hubbard, for example, are very filled with Gnostic ideas. It's, it's almost drawn right out of, out of uh, Gnosticism from the early centuries. All kinds of things in popular culture that have Gnostic themes. Um, you know, you even have books years ago, you probably remember The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. That was a book that was very, really filled with Gnostic ideas. Uh, things that the scriptures don't reveal but are the truth, and so we all need to follow that stuff now. That was, but it's all over our culture. Uh, yeah, the Mormons are another example. The Mormons are another example of someone who comes along and has a, a new revelation from God, which is the authority, and we're all going to follow that now. So this is what Irenaeus is confronted with, this kind of stuff. And so Irenaeus is really seeking to refute, to spell those teachings of the Gnostics, and to defend and proclaim the true teaching of the Scriptures. Irenaeus is really acting as a pastor here, a practical theologian, and he's seeking to guard and protect Christians against these false teachings. And this, this Gnosticism was very popular and really attractive to people. And so he's out trying to say, Christians, no, no, don't, don't follow that. Here's why Gnosticism is wrong, and I'll tell you why Christianity is true. Irenaeus had to persuade people that the Gnostics were not Christians. Then they might claim to be Christians or, or claim some kind of attachment to Christians. They might use Christian terms like salvation or redemption or the light or something like that. Uh, but, but they have their own, their own system. Irenaeus takes a, an approach that I think is, is very important for us to recognize. When he was confronted with this kind of stuff and he's trying to defend the Christian teaching and trying to guard the church against this kind of stuff, Irenaeus grounded his teachings of Christianity on the scriptures. Now, it wouldn't surprise us today that he would do something like that. But this really became, this became an issue of authority. What is the authority for the Christian religion? In other words, where do we, on what do we base what we believe, teach, and confess? And the answer for Irenaeus was, well, the scriptures. And so he argues that the Gnostic teaching is not the teaching of the scriptures. It was not the teaching of Jesus. And it was not the teaching of the apostles. Rather, Irenaeus argued, the Gnostics derived their teaching from sources other, outside, other than the scriptures, even though they claimed to teach, base their teachings on them. So in the process, Irenaeus says, these Gnostics are destroying the truth of the scriptures. They took scriptural passages out of context. They twisted the teachings, even the teachings of Jesus himself, to fit their own lies. And now the Gnostics were trying to establish their false teaching 
as a true and authoritative teaching. It's a classic false teacher kind of thing. Uh, in his work against heresies, Irenaeus gives us kind of an interesting illustration of what he believes the Gnostics have done, especially what they've done to the scriptures. Irenaeus says that the scriptures are like a beautiful mosaic of precious jewels that portray a noble king. And on the screen here, you can see a mosaic of the head of a king. Uh, and all the little pieces of beautiful stone or jewels are all put together, all fit perfectly together into one whole, and they portray a beautiful king. So again, Irenaeus says, the scriptures are like a beautiful mosaic that portray a noble king. It all fits together perfectly. But what the Gnostics have done is they've taken all those pieces and they've rearranged them to, to depict a dog, a fox, he says. All the pieces are the same, kind of, but they rearrange them into something else and they say that it is the scriptures. Uh, and even that they don't do very well, he says. This image of a fox or a dog they say, is actually the beautiful image of a king. Now, they have exchanged the truth for a lie, Irenaeus says, and they attempt to bring other people into their deception. And so he emphasizes that it is the scriptures that are, is the basis for our Christian belief. What we believe, teach, and confess comes from there. We're not making this up, but we believe what the scriptures teach. So the uh, Irenaeus, by the way, also emphasizes along the way that, that the early bishops, the teachers of the Christian church, were teaching in accord with what the scriptures teach. Remember, the Gnostics had said that the apostles, the apostles had the gnosis. They had the secret knowledge, too. They just forgot to pass it on down. Irenaeus says, no, no. The apostles taught and the, the, the people that sat at the feet of the apostles, what we call these early pastors or early bishops, they taught in accord with what the scriptures teach. So he, he emphasizes not only that the scriptures are the base, but what has been taught in the Christian church since the time of the New Testament is consistent with the scriptures and is an authoritative message. So I think that you can see that there's a, there's a problem that Irenaeus faces that he overcomes by emphasizing the authority of the scriptures themselves. Um, his, his basic point is there are no secrets to the Christian faith. There are no hidden mysteries to which the Gnostic teachers alone could claim access. You want to know what Christianity teaches? Look to the scriptures. That's what we believe, teach, and confess. And the scriptures alone are the authority for the Christian faith. Now, the church had always kind of known this, but it was never challenged in a way like this until Gnosticism came along. And somebody had to stand up and say, no, that's not what we believe, but this is what we believe. And here's why. And the, the move that is made early on here with this emphasis on, emphasis on the scriptures is really, really important. Irenaeus mentions along the way, or he emphasizes, uh, that this teaching of Christianity is a unified one. Christians have always taught this. And he really explains in detail how the Christian church throughout the world 
confesses and professes one true faith. He stresses the unity of the faith that the church believes. And he emphasizes that Christians all over the world believe the same thing. They confess the same faith. He says Christians in Germany, Christians in Spain, in France, in Gaul, in the East, in Egypt, in Libya, in Palestine. He says churches in all of these areas all confess this fundamental belief. So not only is, is the Christian church truly united in its faith, but it, uh, uh, Christians really delight in making this kind of confession of faith based on the scriptures. The focus, of course, is on Jesus Christ. And this is why Irenaeus fights so hard to defend the Christian teaching, because he understands rightly that our understanding of Jesus and his work on our behalf is at stake. And the Gnostics threaten that. The Gnostics threaten our understanding of Jesus as our Savior. And the Gnostics threaten the gospel itself. So it has to be protected. In the years after Irenaeus, really in the, in the second century and moving into the third century, we see that there are, are three things that emerge that are really what we might call anchors uh, that give stability to the church in its early history. What I mean by anchor, I mean things that keep it strongly grounded, keep us from drifting away. You know, an anchor on a ship keeps the ship stable. It can't move off downstream with the current. It stays in one place. There are, I think we can call three anchors that give stability uh, to the church in its early period. The first is the scripture. The second is the organization or structure of the church. And what I mean is the, the, the role of, of the early bishops in particular. And then finally, the creeds. Now, when we talk about the scripture, we're going to be looking at the development of the canon of the New Testament in particular. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. When we look at the organization or structure, we'll look at the role of the, the bishops, the kind of the administrative heads of the church at the local level. And then finally, we'll look at the creeds as confessions of faith. I want to talk briefly about the canon today. We'll start with that one. What is a canon? C-A-N-O-N. -N. Well, a canon is, is a rule. And we usually call the canon, we understand it as, as a books in a collection of books that are considered genuine and authoritative. So when we talk about the canon of the New Testament, we're talking about the books that are considered genuine and authoritative for the church. Now, again, we've talked a little bit about why the scriptures were needed as an authority, but why the authoritative books? Why, why was this considered necessary to kind of establish this collection? Well, the canon came into being because of this concern for the authority in the church. Uh, the scriptures, as identified by the church itself, we should point out that it is the early Christian church that puts together the collection of books that we have in the New Testament. The church is the one that determines which books will be in there and which ones are not. But this canon is important, canon of scriptures is important because the scriptures will be the chief source of doctrine uh, in the church. 
So our doctrinal base is going to come from these authoritative books. Now, there were a number of people in the early church that would argue about which books should be in that canon. There's a big debate about this. I'm not going to go into all of that. There were people, for example, that said, no Old Testament. We're not doing anything with the Old Testament. It shouldn't be in there. Well, early Christians said, no, no, no. We're keeping the Old Testament. That belongs in there. There were some that believed that you, you cannot trust the Gospels except Matthew. Matthew's the only one that you can trust. And none of the Pauline epistles, nothing that Paul wrote should be in there. So they have arguments about this. That's part of the reason why they have to establish this thing. In the end, what you have is by really by the end of the, of the third century, beginning of the fourth century, you have a, a collection of books that we would recognize as the New Testament. Now, I want to simply point out that it is not so much the collection that is authoritative, but the books themselves. The early people in the early church believed that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the book of Acts, the Pauline epistles, the writings by Peter and John, and the other t books in the New Testament, Hebrews and so forth, they believed that those books were the inspired word of God, that they had been uh, written by human beings, but were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All those books in the New Testament, they knew who the authors were. In many cases, they had been uh, apostles themselves. They had actually sat at the feet of Jesus and, and, and heard the teaching from him himself. So the books were authoritative because they believed that they were the inspired word of God, but they also know who, knew who wrote them. And that together they taught a consistent and coherent message uh, that was consistent with the Old Testament and also consistent with the teachings of Jesus himself. So that's how we got our New Testament and why it had to be established. Now, we could go into some detail about... Uh, let, me, let me do this very briefly. I think it would be helpful for us as, as Lutherans to talk about this uh, very briefly. And that is that there is a, a historical distinction that was made at the time that this canon was put together. Uh, there were uh, most of the books of the New Testament were books that were regarded. I'll give you, I'm going to give you a Greek word here, and I don't have it on the screen. I apologize for that. But there was a um, a word that they said. Uh, these are homologumena, homologumena. That means that everyone same said they said the same thing about the Gospels. What I mean by that is when it came time to establish an authoritative collection of books. Nobody had a problem with the gospel of, of Mark, for example. Everybody said, Mark's good. We want that in there. Okay. Uh, the Pauline epistles, with the exception of a couple of people that I mentioned, nobody had a problem with the Pauline epistles. Nobody had a problem with the other gospels. So there were some books that were labeled homologumina, not a problem. There were some books where some people said, I'm not so sure if that should be in the canon. For example, some people had a question um, about uh, the, the book of James, the epistle of James. Some people weren't sure about Jude, for example, or second and third John. People scratched their heads a little bit with that. But nevertheless, those books were brought into the canon. Those books have been labeled antilogomena. Somebody said a word against them, but yet they are still in the canon. Now, I, I want to mention this because I think that you will find, especially if you look at the writings of Martin Luther 
or if you look at an old German Bible, that you will often see that in the New Testament, those books that are homologumen are all listed first, and the antilegomena are all put at the end. And that simply was a dis historical distinction that Luther wanted to retain, keep them in. We all remember Luther said that the uh, uh, book of James, he called it the epistle of straw. He didn't have a lot of use for James. He, and the reason he didn't have a lot of use for it was because the Roman church had made a huge deal about the book of James and ran everything, especially about the Christian life, through the book of James. Luther said, if you read James in light of Romans, you'll be fine. If you read Romans in light of James, if you make James the, the chief book, then, then you'll get yourself into trouble. But that's why you see those books at the end of the New Testament, especially in, in Luther's Bible. We don't retain that in the King James Version when we moved over into English. And our English Bibles today usually don't have all the, those antilegomena books listed at the end. I just wanted to make that little distinction. Sometimes you hear comments about Luther and other theologians in the church uh, making that kind of a claim. The next thing that I want to mention that's an anchor in the church is, is, the, is the organization and structure. And this has to do with the role of bishops uh, in the early church and their organizing and administering of the early church. The apostles themselves, remember, had been traveling missionaries. Finally, they would settle down and, and be pastors in area before they died or were martyred. The bishops were often ones who were elected as their successors. And they tended to be located in particular cities or regions. So they, didn't, they weren't traveling missionaries anymore. So the bishops, which were pastors or overseers, they were teachers, would lead the churches, especially during times of strife and conflict and heresy or persecution. So in the, in the time, decades that would come after this, especially as we get into the second, third, and fourth centuries, there's a lot of conflict, a lot of persecution of Christians the bishops, which were kind of part of the structure of the church, were the ones that helped to stabilize the Christian church and keep it rooted firmly on the teachings of the scriptures. Okay. Over time, the role of the bishop would be really expanded beyond being a pastor and a teacher and being more like an administrator. Uh, but early on, these bishops were, were really the teachers. They were the pastors in the church. They were the ones that made sure that the teaching that was handed down from generation to generation was in accord with the scriptures and that it was consistent and that the message would continue on to the next generation. So that helped stabilize, uh, stabilize the church during this time. I want to give you one basic example of the structure by the end of the third century. At a, at a local level, say in a city, you probably would have this structure in place across most of the Christian world. You would have... Uh, the, the foundation would be the congregation. Within that congregation, there would be a body of deacons who would serve the people of the church. Uh, then above them would be a body of presbyters. They would be like pastors or elders. And then you would have a bishop who would oversee all of them. That basic structure is in place by the third century, east and west, and uh, is pretty consistent across, across the Christian World. So that structural question really becomes uh, established by this time. So the, the rise of the, the structure of the bishops uh, really meant that the churches were now better organized, that they would uphold the scriptural teaching, that they would deal with false teachings in the church, 
that they would oversee the, the work of the church, whether it be preaching and teaching, pastoral care, or some kind of uh, human care, taking care of the needy. The bishops would oversee that kind of thing as well. It really depends on, on the individual bishops. But they became important in the, in the life of the church during this time. Now, we only have a couple of minutes left, so we're going to need to wrap this up. When we start next time, we're going to be talking about the creeds and confession of faith. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll elaborate all about that next time and then begin to talk about uh, early persecution, persecution of Christians during this time. And I'll give you some examples of that. But we have a couple of minutes. Does anybody have any questions about anything? Please. Yeah, the, the question is, uh, weren't, weren't the seeds of Gnosticism already there during the time of Paul, and didn't Paul defend the church against it? Yes, you're correct. Paul does, even the Apostle John does. In fact, if you look at John's Gospel and even the book of Revelation, you can see there that John is, in a sense, is talking in a way that people will be able to understand, but he's correcting and protecting them against Gnostic teaching. But that's exactly right. Paul knew about this threat, uh, and it, it is uh, something that starts very early, and will go for a very long time in the church. Yeah, Gnosticism is a serious threat. There are many different varieties of it. It's hard for us to talk about it uh, in just one form, but, but it's, it's widespread. Any other questions or comments about anything? I've given you a lot today. I understand that. Some deep things. Syncretism. I know you're all going to be thinking about syncretism as you go home today. Gnosticism. You can talk about it at the dinner table. But thank you very much for, for being here today. It's, it's a pleasure to be here with all of you. Let's close with the blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Blessings to you this week. Hope to see you next week. We'll have plenty of interesting things to talk about next time. Thank you.